Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 64, Approaching Dark, recorded here on September 19th, 2023. Thank you for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. Check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Late Bloomer, and our outro is Buzzsaw Party Boy. In some corrections, first, uh, in the last episode, I thought it was a good idea for me to sing to you guys. My apologies. <laughs> I shouldn't have done that, but that was fun. Uh, second, the lids to the kids' lunchboxes apparently were not snap-on and snap-off a bowl. They just snapped off or snapped apart. So uh, that was too bad. That's my fault. I'm sorry about that. And finally, in our B-League Division Championship game, we won with a walk-off base hit and extra innings, which is about as close a game as you could possibly play for the championships. And by no characterization should I have said that we steamrolled the competition. That wasn't the case. My apologies to the scumbags. In Dinosaur News, our first article today is from the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology, published on July 20th, 2023, called A New Titanosaurian from the Upper Cretaceous Cusier Formation of the Karga Oasis, Egypt. The paper says that fossils from the late Cretaceous of Africa and the Arabian Peninsula are rare, and that, quote, most discoveries to date have consisted of limited fossils that have precluded detailed phylogenetic and paleobiogeographic interpretations. In other words, the remains are either too scrappy or aren't of a particularly diagnostic element of an animal, like the skull or vertebrae or claws or something like that. The authors describe an associated partial postcranial skeleton of a new titanosaurian taxon from the Upper Cretaceous Kazir formation of the Karga Oasis Western Desert of Egypt, and the new animal is named Igai Semku, known by five dorsal vertebrae and twelve appendicular elements. Quote, making this one of the most informative dinosaurs yet recovered from the latest Cretaceous of Afro Arabia says the paper. The limb bones are considered, quote, relatively gracile, and distinct differences in the coracoid and metatarsal one, quote, preclude referral to the new specimen of Mansurasaurus. It's hypothesized that this animal and its close relationship with animals like Mansurasaurus indicates that the North American titanosaurs were more closely related to other European species rather than to southern African species, which would have had their origins in Gondwana. The holotype VB621640, housed in the vertebrate fossil collection of the, and this is German, Sonderforschungsbergreich 69 of the Technische Universität in Berlin, was excavated from the Kazir Formation. It's comprised of a closely associated partial postcranial skeleton consisting of five fragmentary dorsal vertebrae, partial left coracoid, partial left ulna, three left metacarpals, one, four, and five, and partial left pubis, both tibiae, the left fibula, three metatarsals, the left first one and the left and right second metatarsals, and numerous other fragments, they say. Igai derives his name from the Lord of the Oasis deity, and the species name Semku is a version of the ancient Egyptian verb for to forget, making this the forgotten Lord of the Oasis. And this refers to both the, quote, relatively recent emergence of the latest Cretaceous non-marine vertebrate fossils from continental Africa, and particularly Egypt, and also 
refers to the lengthy and complicated history of the holotypic specimen. It turns out the remains were originally excavated in 1977, taken to the Technical University of Berlin. It was first mentioned in literature in the 1990s, and it was transferred to the Museum for Nachtschakund in 2008, and the parts of it were published for, on, for a few years until it was formally described in this paper, uh, which is like in 2023. Uh, so this speaks to the forgotten part of its name, and these fossils appear to have been overlooked for more than 40 years. Uh, but this beast would have been, you know, maybe 50 feet in length, making it, you know, small to medium sized for a titanosaur, because titanosaurs were huge, late surviving members of the sauropod lineage, which are famous for reaching truly astounding sizes. So it's, it's fun to have a, a giant animal like this be overlooked, I guess. Maybe that's ironic. Our second paper is from the Journal of Cretaceous Research on September 13th, 2023, called Vectodromius insularis, a new hypsilophodontid dinosaur from the Lower Cretaceous Wessex Formation of the Isle of Wight, England. The paper says that since the original description of Hypsilophodon, quote, a number of small bipedal neonathitians have been referred to the family Hypsilophodon today, and, quote, it has become clear that basal neonathitians were highly diverse and that these animals do not form a monophyletic group. These animals have proven to be, quote, a paraphyletic assemblage of lineages that represent successive group outgroups to the larger, more specialized hadrosauriforms. And that's a bit of a mouthful, but what I think it means is that there is a true lineage that derives into hadrosaurs, the really big, late Cretaceous, tooth-grinding giants we picture as, like, Edmontosaurus. But all along the way, leading up through the Mesozoic and into the late Cretaceous, there were smaller, more gracile creatures that were successively branching off of that Neornithitian bow plan. And these were lithe bipedal, beaked, and sometimes tusked critters that are referred to as hypsilophodontids. And I think that's what's being said here. But each of those branches, every time they find an animal and they refer to it to a hypsilophodon today, turns out, well, they're too derived to be actually hypsilophodons. So in, in North America, the, you know, that more derived group would be called the Thescalosauridae. Uh, and you can think of uh, the, the animal, the Orodromius, which we discussed with Dr. Verrecchio in episode 61. Uh, whereas in South America, this branch, uh, what branched off would have turned into something that they called the Elasmaria, which were similar to the Iguanodontids. And in Europe, there were the Rhabdodontidae, which we hear a lot about, uh, which is kind of further up that tree in that Iguanodontia area. But as all these Neonathitians were more formally understood and subcategorized into the Thescalosaurids and the Rhabdodontidae and others, it meant that, that the foundational Hypsilophodon was left all by itself in this strange Hypsilophodontidae uh, that you know, didn't have any peers until now. The authors of this paper report a new species of Hypsilophodon today from the Wessex Formation believed to be represented by a juvenile individual that has distinctive pelvic and limb bones showing, quote, that it represents a distinct genus and species. Quote, this new taxon increases the diversity of Hypsilophodontids and dinosaurs in the early Cretaceous of the Isle of Wight and suggests that the Hypsilophodon today may represent a clade that was endemic to Europe in the early Cretaceous. The name Vectodromius insularis derives from the Roman name for the Isle of Wight, Vectus, and the Latin Dromaeus uh, means runner, as well as the Latin insularis means that it is insular, making this the insulated Isle of Wight runner. In fact, the Dromaeus is known by its holotype IWCMS 2023.102, housed by the Isle of Wight Council Museum Service, and it was excavated from the Wessex Formation. It's comprised of a partial skeleton, including a dorsal neural arch, five distal caudal vertebrae, the left and right ilia, left pubis, left and right ischia, partial right femur, and right tibia, and left femur. All right, with the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. 
My guest today, you'll remember from episode 40, Control. He's an author, a dinosaur paleontologist, and curator of the Mace Brown Museum of Natural History in South Carolina. I'm excited to have returning to the show Dr. Scott Persons. Thank you for coming back and joining me today. Well, thanks so much for having me back. I couldn't help but notice that Charleston has been in the news, international news, uh, in the last day or so. Do you remember what the big story is? Is it do, do people is Charleston familiar with what's going on? Uh, I'm I'm not. Uh, but unless it's paleontological, sometimes I'm completely out of the loop. What are you referring to? It what? looks like there is a missing F thirty five fighter jet that uh, <laughs> <laughs> that has been located. After all, it sounds like last night they found it. Um, there is a funniest tweet by uh, it was called the Flight Radar Twenty Four, the world's most trusted flight tracker. Uh, and it says, quote, the U.S. military is searching for a missing F-35B in South Carolina after the pilot ejected yesterday and the jet kept flying. If you have seen an F-35 in the woods, <laughs> please contact the U.S. Marines. <laughs> Isn't that bizarre? That is bizarre. Wow. I know. I, I had not heard that story yet. The okay. The well, had they found it. <laughs> and the follow-up tweet was, we weren't kidding, by the way. If you've seen the jet or have any information, please call the Joint Base Charleston Defense Operations Center. And then they give their phoning number. So I guess it was a training exercise. A guy got out and the plane just kept going. But uh, yeah, they found it two hours to the north or something like that after a while. But that's just fun. <laughs> right. Okay, then. And I, I bring it up because uh, it leads to the question. Last time we spoke, you were prepping to head out to Wyoming to excavate notosaur fossils from the Lance Formation. Uh, how, how does an expedition planning to return with... With lots and lots of heavy rocks, travel, they probably wouldn't use a fighter jet, 2,000 miles across the nation. Uh, do you rent a U-Haul, or, or how do you prep for that sort of, uh, that sort of travel? Uh, well, actually, that's hilarious that you would use that as an introduction. <laughs> uh, a lot of our fossils actually came back, and uh, a captain uh, in the Air Force. Okay. Who, who flies uh, aircraft. Um, he didn't take it on a plane. Uh, he just happened to be one of the fellows that was out on the dig with us um, and uh, chose to drive out there as actually opposed to fly because he was uh, stopping off for a training exercise, uh, all of which I assume went, went much better than the one uh, we just bought. Um And so he actually transported a lot of the fossils back uh, with us. That's amazing. Yeah, but it was a, a, a great outing. We did find a lot of stuff. We brought back both specimens that were uh, fully prepared and ready for study, and then also some large jackets that needed to be worked on. Mm -hmm. I'm so interested in almost every single part of how this plan goes comes together. Do you, when you go out there, do you go with a with a locality in mind to return to? How much of your time do you want to spend, perhaps prospecting a new area? How long do you commit to going out there? And uh, do you do you do you camp out on the land? Or I mean, so many of the details, I'm very interested in. Well, I'll give you sort of a, a rough uh, overview. Okay. So in case where we were going out to to dig randomly, we did do some prospecting while we were out there, so looking for potential new sites. Um, but we had two major locations in mind that we wanted to revisit. One of them was a site that we had found the summer before and had just seen a very little bit of the specimen coming out. And we made the conscientious decision, okay, we're not going to expose any more of the specimen. We're gonna uh, leave it uh, underground where it's nice and safe and then come back. And that specimen was actually a Mosasaur, Scott. And we went back out there, we uh, relocated it, we had the GPS coordinates, and we dug in and we found more and more of the Mosasaur. And we got the majority of the skull, and it's a big skull, 
out. Uh, but it does look like there's still more of the skeletons and the postcranial material um, that we still need to go back uh, for, and we'll try to do that uh, this summer. The second specimen that we were gunning for, and this one was really um, sort of the heart of, of the expedition, was the nodosaur that you mentioned, so big armored dinosaur. And this was a specimen that had been worked on 20 years ago. Oh. Um, so a lot of time had passed, and the specimen had just been in the collections of the Glen Rock Pelion uh, Museum, which is an organization that's out there that we, uh, we, we partner with. And, you know, it was the, the excavation site was a place that we would hike through. We would just go and check in on every summer. And reliably, every summer that we checked in on this site, we would find somewhere on the surface an osteoderm. So a piece of armor from the nodosaur, just a little one that was lying out. And that had always put in my head that, you know what, I bet the original excavation here finished too soon. That they called it quits before they actually found everything that was there. And at some section of this quarry, there's still a spot where bits and pieces of the nodosaur are eroding out. And this sort of thing happens all the time. So we decided to go back out there. We decided to dig in at this locality and just see if indeed we could relocate whatever section of the nodosaur uh, might still be there waiting for us. Um, and the first day we went out there, we looked around for a long time, did not find any other promising osteoderms. And then I, I spotted on the ground this one nasty looking chunk of bone and I brushed it off. And sure enough, it was a big osteoderm. Now, as it happens, it's a weird osteoderm. We still don't know. I don't know what part of the body this osteoderm, uh, osteoderm covered because it's got this very, very strong concavity to it on, on, its un, on its underside. So it looks kind of like a very nasty uh, elbow or, or knee pad. But it's got, in addition to a strong keel to it, it's got a broken spike um, about twice the, the width of my thumb. So it really looks like sort of a shoulder pad from like a Mad Max film or something <laughs> like that. It would have this sharp keel on it, and it's got this big spike sticking up. I've never seen a, a nodosaur osteoderm uh, like it before. I think maybe it's from uh, the tail, or maybe it is from uh, the forelimb or, or something like that. I, I just don't know. Anyway, we found that big osteoderm. We were really excited about it, so we decided, okay, this is the section of the quarry we're going to try to dig in further at. And we did that. And not long after we broke ground, we started to find other osteoderms. And eventually we found um, what essentially uh, amounts to about 42 osteoderms that are all fused together. Wow. So these were individual pieces. These were small, almost sort of uh, hockey puck size osteoderms, a little bit smaller than some of them are, uh, are poker chip size osteoderms. They are um, hexagonal in nature and they're all fused together. So it looks sort of like uh, this massive nodosaur crusty uh, honeycomb. Uh, and what we think this is, is we think this is what's commonly referred to as the pelvic shield. So a section where a bunch of osteoderms are fused together over top of the pelvis. Nodosaurs, like other ankylosaurs, have got um, really stout hips. They're extremely inflexible. So there's no reason to have individual osteoderms there. There's no reason to have uh, an armored outer layer that's still got some flexibility to it. Instead, it's just one enormous thick piece. Huh. 
Very strange. And so does that infor- suggest that maybe the, that unusual scoot it, you found would have been related to the back end? Or do you think, it, I mean, I guess it would, who knows, mm-hmm. eh? Yeah, who knows? And, and for <laughs> the specimen, material confidently known from both ends. So we've got uh, the hips, and we've also got a couple pieces uh, of the skull. Although, unfortunately, the skull is, is in pieces mm. and uh, dissert. Mm. But it's, you would, th- although disarticulated, presume that it was related to the, associated with the... Yes, yeah. we think it is all uh, one individual animal. Because nodosaurs are very rare uh, in our environment. Mm-hmm. That's why we were confident these other osteoderms we were finding at this locality were from the, the same specimen. I mean, we hiked around um, for several weeks and reliably found chunks of ceratopsians in bits of hadrosaurs. We found tyrannosaur teeth and we found uh, raptor teeth. Uh, there was only one other spot where we found bits of ankylosaurs. They're just, just rare in the local environment. Mm-hmm. Well, an interesting idea would be, I would suppose that when an animal becomes covered in sediment, that the, the sedimentary uh, sand and, and muck and stuff like that that would bury it and entomb it wouldn't necessarily also smash off all of its uh, the corners off its horns and stuff like that. that presumably, um, that part where you're just getting covered in sand or getting lapped over by the beach or something might be actually the gentle part of fossilization. Do you, is there is a reason to believe that parts of the reasons why its skull or, or, or you're saying that uh, some of the osteoderms look like they've been cracked um, that this happened during, you know, in the process of dying or, or you know, sort of perimortem yes. sort of thing? Yeah. The, the taphonomy, the study of what happened to this animal after it died and how it got buried is really, really cool for the site. Oh. Um, because some of our nodosaur fossils um, are two-for-one deals. They're actually two fossils in one. They are, on the one hand, um, the actual chunk of the nodosaur skeleton, but they also have brilliantly preserved on them uh, a trace fossil. Some of our nodosaur shows very clear evidence of being munched on by a tyrannosaur. Oh, wow. And a tyrannosaur would do a heck of a good job of disarticulating a nodosaur skeleton, uh, even even the thick armor. <laughs> what part of, uh, where, do you, where are you finding the, the ichnophossil? Where are the bite marks on it? So we, we find the bark bite marks not on the on the osteoderms because the transfer wasn't there's no. nothing to eat on those. Um, instead, we find it on the sections of the hip that we've got. We've got some very deep uh, indentations, and we've also got what may be evidence of of um, um, pull traces where the tyrannosaur bit down and then um, wrenched backwards with its head and and scratched uh, deep gouges uh, in the hip bones. Oh wow. I was uh, there was a paper that we covered on the show um, that came out in April, and it was uh, some CT scans that had been performed on a few ankylosaur skulls, and one of them was on a Tarkia specimen that was out of Mongolia, and they found through the CT scanning lesions inside the brain case, which they otherwise wouldn't have been able to see because it was inside, I guess, and they were suggesting that. Um, this was a result of one of two things. One, it was either this interspecies headbutting or some, <laughs> maybe it got clubbed in the head or something like that, but an interspecies problem, or that a large, large theropod uh, was a contributing to, to this problem as well. <laughs> and uh, But the interesting part, I think that the Tarkia was supposedly known from, um, I don't know that the formation from which it is found is known to have uh, anything bigger than the dromaeosaurs and the alvarezsaurs and like an av- oviraptor. So it could be an interesting uh, indication that really big tarbosaur-style dinosaurs might have been there, even though they haven't been uh, formally 
excavated yet. But maybe just biting the head of these things is probably the easier part, or that's maybe the better end to attack if you're going to go after an ankylosaur. <laughs> well, you certainly don't want to mess with the back end. No. Uh, the, the, very much so that the business end of the animal, even <laughs> on a, a dinosaur, which doesn't have the, the tail club, um, the tail is lined uh, with uh, healed uh, osteoderms. And there's no doubt in my mind that would seriously mess you up, even if you were a tyrannosaur. I suspect your best tactic was to do maybe what our where specimen records a tyrannosaur doing, which is going for the softer uh, underbelly, mm-hmm. trying to flip the animal over. Maybe it was stuck in mud or something. Maybe that would make it a better uh, approach and <laughs> just go get it. Maybe, but you know, notosaurs have got really wide uh, feet and very, very strong um, foreign hind limbs. These are all terrain uh, critters. I actually think a tyrannosaur would have harder time moving through the muck and mire ah. than the notice. Fair. I like the sound of that. I can imagine ankylosaurus just being, just looking at them would be a deterrent. <laughs> I don't think that you'd have yeah. to get that close to them at all. <laughs> they don't look appetizing in any way. That's cool. So when uh, when you're on location in the in the lands formation, do you, do you camp out? Mm-hmm. Do you take a, a, a camper? Do you uh, do you have tents? Do you just stay at uh, the Marriott and then truck in for the day, or how do you <laughs> how do you situate yourselves out there? So uh, in this case, uh, to be honest, it's uh, pretty cushing. Okay. So our our dig site is located just outside the town of uh, Glen Rock, Wyoming. So from the town center from Main Street, you can look over and you can see the hills where we're digging. Um, and so that means we're actually able to stay in the town uh, of Glen Rock. So we actually stay at a local uh, motel and then we just drive out to the field sites uh, every day. Um, and, and the Glen Rock exposure is a wonderful place, not just because of the um, skeletons that we've got there, the big skeletons. It's also really rich in uh, microsite deposits, so little tiny fossils that you can find. It's, it's got a lot of dinosaur track sites, and one of the new discoveries that we did make is we did find a new uh, Ceratopsian uh, trackway, which is probably, probably um, Triceratops uh, footprints. So we're excited about that. Um, that's a case where the dinosaur's trail is going into the hillside. So we've got this flat exposure of sandstone <laughs> and it dips back and we're going to have to go at it with shovels and pickaxes <laughs> uh, next up to fully track the, the triceratops. That's interesting. So would, um, I, when I picture the triceratops, there's kind of maybe a historical, uh, journey of how it's posture postured would, um, would, would you have all four tracks and would you be able to perhaps get whether it had that sprawled front end or could it would, I guess you'd be able to have a, a more educated yeah, no, opinion on as is uh, typically the case for dinosaur um, trackways, um, they indicate uh, a much more straight-legged posture. They're, they're more narrow gauge than what a more traditional uh, lizard-like uh, reconstruction mm. place them as. Uh, now, uh, ceratopsians, by dinosaur standards, have got a fairly wide uh, front end, so they're not as narrow uh, as, as others. But still, yeah, a far cry from the sort of sprawling, perpetual sumo wrestler pose mm, of mm. turtle uh, or lizard. Well, you see it with a lot of traditional or historical representations of like a stegosaur and the triceratops. That they're just the front end is kind of a push-up versus uh, yeah. perhaps standing like a rhino or something. That's interesting. Well, good. Well, that'll, that'll help uh, <laughs> make a clearer picture of that idea. 
Oh, really cool. So another idea, so when you when you are revisiting a place which had been identified in the past and you have the GPS coordinates, is there like a claim that's staked? Like, or do you just kind of like keep it a secret or, or um, are they protected? Are they there for you to go and back? And who gets dibs? Like, how is this decided? And is it like a little Wild sure. Westy or? <laughs> um, well, it is it's certainly Wild Westy in that it's, it's, it's Wyoming. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, the site that we're digging at is on uh, private land. Okay. Um, but the case where the landowners have made the decision um, to grant access to it to their uh, local museum uh, under the stipulation that the specimens that are uh, found and excavated there um, ultimately wind up remaining in Wyoming and go on display for, uh, for the children of Glenrock, uh, which is very much of the mission of the, the Glenrock Paleon Museum. So although we brought back a, a lot of specimens to, to prep uh, and to study here at the College of Charleston, ultimately those specimen, specimens will be uh, returning and go into the permanent catalog of the Glenrock Paleon Museum. Okay. Yeah, I wondered about that. I wondered. You, you got ahead of me on that question. Very good. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But you, you wanted to know about sort of who has claim to it. So because it is um, uh, only the Glenrock Paleon Museum that's got access to those beds uh, mm-hmm. at the moment, uh, no, we're not concerned about any sort of um, uh, competition or anything like that, although uh, the museum does work with, with multiple research groups. But because it's all funneled through them, uh, things are organized and no one is uh, stepping on anybody else's mm. toes. I'm sure that's more civil than in some places where you might otherwise in, it sounds like sometimes it's kind of like uh, in national parks or, or um, other places in the world, it's a little bit less formal. (laughs) Oh, sure. And you know, I've, I've been on digs in, in Mongolia where we would uh, come across sites that would just uh, absolutely break your heart where tents have been um, poached. Um, And it's a case where um, it's not just that the specimens have been lost for science, it's that specimens have been actively smashed because what poachers do is they can't, you can't smuggle out a whole tarbosaur, a whole um, dinochirus, a whole um, titanosaur. Um, what you do is you go for the elements of the animals that are valuable and uh, can be smuggled out. So you smash your way through the vertebral column, through the rib cage, and you just go for the teeth, you just go for, for the claws. And so I've just sort of seen these dinosaurs die a, a, a second death, and it's, uh, it's, it's really sad to, wow. to come across a where you've got uh, the smashed bones, just this rubble pile strewn across the, the Gobi Desert. That is, uh, that's, that's like, a, that's poaching. That's terrible. Um, well, another one thing I was wondering about was when you get out to, uh, I was looking at Wyoming, it sounds like they have, uh, and, in, and certainly in a lot of places when you get into the Badlands, the sedimentary layers are like Neapolitan ice cream. You can see them very clearly. And I wonder if uh, when, you, when you go out there and you're specifically looking to only excavate perhaps in, 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 uh, in one formation, do, do you kind of like trespass or peek into like other time zones? Do you, do you stop and say, ah, there's a, maybe, maybe we're not here for the Cenozoic, but uh, if we look over there, maybe, do you, do you, is there prospecting for other time zones? Or do you just try and stay really focused on just the Lake Cretaceous when you're doing Lake Cretaceous stuff? Yeah, so um, at our locality, um, everything in our exposure from the, the very bottom of the hills all the way up to the peaks is all dinosaur age segment. It's all uh, late Cretaceous. Now, there are other places where you're absolutely right. You can actually um, stop and dig for Triceratops, hike up the hillside a little bit further, and then you find yourself in the White River for 
information and you can go looking for uh, for bronzothier teeth um, or maricodidone or, or what, uh, what, what have you. But no, at our locality, it is all lance formation. Uh, but nevertheless, there are very, very um, obvious differences between some of the different um, sedimentary layers. For instance, when we go to look for the footprints, then we're looking at uh, sandstone layers that are particularly hard, that have got some iron mixed in with them, because those are the kinds of sediments that are capable of preserving the dinosaur tracks. Um, and because our beds are tilted about 20 degrees, um, you can sort of start on one side of the gully, see where we've got uh, fossil tracks located, look all the way across, and spot where that bed continues. And then you'll hike down for a ways and then work your way back up and then you'll rediscover uh, that layer and uh, hopefully find um, some new um, uh, fossil tracks. And that was how we came across the uh, Triceratops tracks. They're in the same layer as a spot that we found way across uh, our little uh, ravine, but, but uh, we had not found them on this side before. Hmm. Now, one of the things you were mentioning is that the the, the trackway it, it appears to be uh, very Triceratops-like, and certainly um, Triceratops fossils are found there, but they're also found in a lot of other places. And and there's kind of this question of speciation with, uh, if that's even the right sure. word, but, uh, you know, uh, the lumping and the splitting, that there's some differences, but then they're not all that great sometimes, or you find different ends, and, and there's all these questions. And so there's been a bunch of animals which have been declared dubious, but I guess synonymized with Triceratops eventually. Uh, same with Tyrannosaurus, same with the Pachycephalosaurus, and they're kind of found in this lance yes. formation. That's interesting stuff. When you when you see that, I guess, the trackway, um, because Triceratops is so popular and very Triceratops-like animals are there, uh, what is it that, first of all, makes it look like a, tri a Ceratopsian footprint? And uh, and it's just because Triceratops is the, is the big guy, that's the one you expect to find if you find anything? Yeah. So uh, first off, the, these tracks are really big. Yeah. Uh, they are clearly uh, ceratopsian. It's a, a quadrupedal uh, trackway. We can tell from the shape and the number of toes that are present, especially in the forepaw, uh, that we're looking at uh, a ceratopsian. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Um, we cannot tell from the footprints. We can't distinguish between triceratops and, say, a rarer animal in the environment like Taurosaurus. And, of course, you alluded to some of the uh, debate over lumping and splitting and ontogenetic theories relating to is Taurosaurus synonymous with uh, Triceratops. Um, of course, the, the major um, skeletal difference between them has to do with, uh, with the frill. Um, and we do have material at the Glen Rock Paleon Museum that uh, frill material, skull material, that can be attributed to either Triceratops or Taurosaurus. And I would argue to you that they are two distinctive animals, that amongst this material there is absolutely um, overlap in, in terms of uh, size. Mm -hmm. And indeed, one of the specimens that we're pretty excited about is a, a sort of medium-sized Taurosaurus. So it's not a great big um, end of its ontogenetic series uh, Triceratops. It's sort of a, a medium-sized uh, individual. Um, in fact, it's on the, the smaller end of what's recognized um, as uh, anything less than a, a true juvenile. Mm. That's interesting. I think that one of those uh, those infant or juvenile taurosaurs have been kind of on the wish list for a while, so <laughs> that'd be fun to find. <laughs> Yes, I wish we had more of the specimen, but mm. we do have uh, the belt, which is which is kind of the important part. 
Um, and I think too, when we, we were talking, you were mentioning how um, the, the skull of the ankylosaur showed indications that it's not necessarily perhaps uh, going to be a known species, that it didn't quite look like known species. But we know that they, you know so many things do look kind of different through these ranges. When you go to declare it a unique species or, or try and find a relatives, are there concerns? Are you worried? Like, how do you, with what certainty would somebody to say, uh, you know, this is new or, or it's just really closely related or how, how, with how much confidence do you move forward with that kind of, uh, uh, finalization when you're, when you're completed doing sure. all the measurements sure. and things like that? Well, you know, it, it really, really depends on how much of the material that you have, uh, have got, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you, if, of course, new uh, new entire genera of dinosaurs have been named uh, based just on teeth mm. because they don't seem to line up with anything that you found so far. And in many instances, it's been discovered, well, wait a second, uh, now that we've got uh, a skull that's attached to a body, we see that, in fact, this tooth genus that you had, well, actually, those are the kind of teeth that happen to belong to this other animal that was named beforehand that just we just didn't have the teeth uh, for. Mm. So that certainly happens um, a lot. And so your degree of certainty as far as declaring when you've got a new species and when you don't is very much so a factor of how complete the remains are that you're working with and also how different they are. I mean, today, there are plenty of instances where you can think of two species of animals, different species of animals, but that are still very, very similar in their skeletal uh, morphology. Lions mm -hmm. um, and would certainly be one uh, example of that. As it happens with our nodosaur, there's a lot about this nodosaur that is weird. Uh, the presence of the pelvic shield for an animal there in the lance is, uh, is, is one of them. So my hope with the animal would be to go through and very carefully and just catalog everything that is different about it. And right now, my expectation is that the number of differences we're going to see are just so numerous and so different as far as sort of uh, an extreme, it not just being a difference in terms of, you know, oh, this element is slightly larger in this individual than in that one, or it's got a slightly different shape. No, it's got a, a, a totally new uh, morphology to it. My hope is that those differences will be uh, will come out to be sufficient to uh, make a very, very strong case, as opposed to having to go, mm, you know, I think it's most likely mm -hmm. uh, that morphological differences we are seeing are significant enough to declare it. Uh, but it is absolutely uh, a gradient. And of course, you know, um, across evolution, there was no direct line for when you pass from one species into another. Um, it was gradient, right? There's this uninterrupted series of matings that connect um, a descendant with all of its uh, ancestors. And you, you can't presume to arrive at a situation where suddenly the offspring is a different species mm. than its parents. Yeah, I was just saying, there was one day that uh, some chicken hatched out of an egg, and, and uh, but its parents weren't chickens. But it, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> what came first, the chicken or the egg? One day there was a chicken. <laughs> Maybe the parents wouldn't even have noticed, you know? The change would be so subtle. So strange. <laughs> 
so like with the Lake Cretaceous, there's such a good representation of, of uh, most of the dinosaur species we seem to know from, from Lake Cretaceous because it's uh, most recent, least destroyed in a lot of ways. And uh, <laughs> But uh, also in North America, anyhow, the that we get triceratops specimens and they're found in a variety of different states all across uh, North America. I, I was impressed to find that the, the, the Parasaurolophus seems to be uh, way down in New Mexico, but also up in Alberta. And then the Tyrannosaurus seemed to be represented very well across uh, that that. Uh, western side as well and uh it's impressive to find that uh they had such scope <laughs> like they don't kind of find themselves sure. niched in a way and uh, and then kylosaurs as well like there's it's very interesting to see how they were able to you know take that entire continent to their own of their own and and get around sure but you know in in many ways that's actually exactly what you would expect <laughs> these are large animals right and there's a general rule in ecology that as an animal increases in body size, right? For all intensive purposes, its environment becomes increasingly more two-dimensional. Once you're the size of the elephant, once you're the size of a, a triceratops, there are very few geographic barriers that are sufficient to hold you back. So really, you know, short of a, a, a steep mountain range or the ocean, there's not a lot that can block you from accessing uh, habitats that you want to access. Mm-hmm. Today, with a wide range of uh, bison across North America, or the range of elephants and giraffes uh, across Africa. Well, I, that makes so much sense. I, like, I would, there's so many things that surprised me. There was the um, I can't remember which one came first, but uh, I was talking to a gentleman from uh, Dr. Spencer Lucas from from New Mexico, and he was talking about how. Um, uh, the Spherotholus and the Prenocephaly, which are from you know Mongolia and New Mexico, mm-hmm. have been basically said. You no, know, these things are so closely related; they're almost indistinguishable. And that's we're talking if in the late Cretaceous, the continents at no point during the Mesozoic would have been they couldn't have been any further apart than they were at that point. Yet they were still that closely related in the late late Cretaceous. I guess. Well, we have a, a lot of evidence of um, exchanges, dinosaur exchanges, faunal exchanges between um, uh, Asia and, and North America, right? The, the fauna that you can see over in the late Cretaceous of uh, Mongolia is actually pretty darn similar to the fauna that we can see in, in the lands in terms of tyrannosaurs are uh, number one big carnivores. Then you've got uh, dromaeosaurs below that. You've got uh, shared ornithomimids. And of course, you've got shared uh, hadrosaurs. Ceratopsians, totally different uh, story there. Uh, but still, in many ways, they're, uh, they're very similar ecosystems. And there is strong evidence that there was a capacity for animals from Asia to find their way to North America and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just astonishing. And I don't know if it's a function of just animals are amazing at getting around or if just millions of years is plenty enough time <laughs> to get there. <laughs> or a combination of... Uh, there was just an article I was just hearing about today about ravens that they found. They're modern raven uh, fossils excavated out of Beijing where they found the Peking mm-hmm. Man. And they're... For all intents and purposes, the same as ravens today, but my, ravens do not live there presently, and so that's just a hundred thousand years ago, and uh, and they were there, and they're obviously not there now. I just maybe things get around, and they <laughs> it's not so surprising. Yeah, well, you know, as good as dinosaurs were at getting around in the late Cretaceous, of course, they're even better at getting around now, mm-hmm. right? Because flies can can help you to disperse yourself. Uh, nothing's as good as uh, as flight, and that's partially why today uh, birds have such a high, high species count uh, over mammals uh, because they're really good at uh, invading, discovering um, new open uh, habitat 
habitats on islands and things like that uh, where they can adapt and become specialized. I'm I'm always such you know astonished at how closely related yeah Asia and North America were, and but but it seems like the real difference was in the north and the south. That once you get below the into that southern continent, that that was really where things were. That's where the big distinction between species seems to have been most prominent in the late Cretaceous. Yes, radically different um, ecosystems, radically different kinds of dinosaurs filling ecological niches in uh, Laurasia versus Gondwana. Mm-hmm. Fascinating stuff down there. <laughs> do you get down into, do you spend much time in, in, the, in the southern hemisphere when it comes to like looking for that sort of thing? Or is it uh, I, just you I, only get one life to live, you know? <laughs> I, I've been to a, a couple of times. I've been fortunate enough to go on to some, some short digs while I've been down there. Uh, but no, I, I cannot claim to have dug as much as I should have uh, in, in Gondwana. You can only do so much, right? <laughs> what a bunch but of... I will say that my, my first time um, visiting a dinosaur excavation um, was actually in uh, Australia. Um, I went to, uh, to Dinosaur Cove, the site where Leonosaura uh, was discovered. But that was back in fourth grade. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would have been an exciting trip. Yeah. And perhaps an influential trip, it sounds like. Oh, it was it was wonderful. So um, the the guy who invited us to the to the site was a fellow named uh, Dr. Rich, um, and he was at uh, the Natural History Museum in in Melbourne. And I was super. You know about Leonosaurus, right? Leonosaurus is arguably the cutest dinosaur, and I mean that scientifically <laughs> because it's one that's got enormous orbits. It's got big eyeballs, great big peepers relative to the size of its head which was one line of evidence used to suggest early on maybe this thing's being active uh, during the extended uh, polar winters that Australia had mm. back when it was uh, much further uh, south. Anyway, I, I heard about that. I was super excited, so excited to go and see the museum. And we walk into the museum, and we're told that the dinosaur hall is closed. It's closed down for renovations because they're putting up a, a new exhibit on whales. And I was just... I was devastated. Um, but, and you should know, I'm an only child. And, and my mother uh, walks up to the front desk, leans over to the receptionist and says, Miss, we have a very sad child here. Could I speak to your paleontologist? And to my utter surprise, and frankly, a little bit of my horror, um, the receptionist said, oh, yes, ma'am. <laughs> she uh, the, the kind of person that Dr. Thomas Rich uh, was. Um, and they called him up, explained the situation, and he stopped you know, whatever important work he was doing. And this guy was getting grants from National Geographic and all this other stuff. He came down, um, introduced himself to me, took me up uh, into the, uh, the collections room, pulled out a drawer, and handed me the skull of Leonosaura uh, to look. Um, and we chatted for what I'm, I'm sure was too long a period of time. It was a huge imposition on him. Um, and by the end of it, he drew us what he called a little mud map, uh, giving us directions for how to find um, the, the Dinosaur Cove uh, site. Mm, that's, that's a great story. Well, that's really good. Well, um, if I recall correctly, I think that uh, some of those Australian finds get uh, some neat nicknames that come with them. I think Banjo is one, and the Matilda is one, and, and things like that. Um, I know in the book... Well, you, 
Australians are great at nicknames. <laughs> uh, but they're also in, in Jurassic Park as well. Uh, the Big Rex is what they call the big one. The juveniles, what the smaller Tyrannosaur is called. Lex calls one of the tri- a baby Triceratops Ralph after a kid from her school because he looks like <laughs> a Ralph. And a male Velociraptor juvenile uh, that can change color like a chameleon is nicknamed Clarence. And that one leads them to a Velociraptor nest in the end due to a radio collar, I think. And uh, and then Jurassic Park, the film, gives us the spitter. <laughs> and it gives us the raptors. Sure. Uh, nicknames, uh, I think trike would have come out of that. Although I don't know if they said trike in the movie. But it's certainly the marketing uh, and made a Triceratops into a you know three-wheeled vehicle for everyone afterward. Was trike a nickname for Triceratops before? I, I, don't, I don't know. I wasn't in, in the paleontological uh, professional loop. When Jurassic Park, of course, uh, came out, because then I think I was in um, like first grade. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, there was something about the marketing campaign that was just terrified of putting long Latin or Greek names on their merchandise, mm-hmm. and so everything had to have some newly invented uh, common name: Raptor, Spitter, Trike. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I also. I remember very fond- fondly that they made some Jurassic Park candies that were called spitters. Okay. And just the Lophosaur is doing his umbrella thing uh, on the cover. That's, and they were pretty good. That sounds familiar. Well, but that uh, Jurassic Park is not unique to this. Australia is not unique to this. I was looking through some of the mu- uh, specimens at the Mace Brown Museum, and I saw that there are a couple of good ones, too. The first here I want to see is, uh, or hear about, is uh, I saw that there was... A turtle specimen named Donatello, which I'm going to yes. guess is named after the purple Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Uh, <laughs> uh, how do how do specimens gain their monikers in in collection, and, and how formal are they? Well, you 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 were real lucky there. You you, you picked one that I, I can speak to. Okay, uh, I named that one. Okay, sort of. So that was the specimen that uh, I found. That one was found uh, in the Lance Formation. Oh, so that's what specimens that we brought back uh, to work on. Yeah, and we were just sitting around, and it's, it's traditional that a specimen gets a, a nickname if it's turning out to be a specimen that you're confident you're going to spend a lot of hours out of your life um, devoted to. Mm. And you want to have uh, a nice, friendly way of uh, referring to it. So yeah, Donatello is one of our fossil turtles, and we were sitting around, and we found a little bit of the shell sticking out of the hillside. That's, you know, turtles are extremely common up there. Uh, n- nothing surprising about that. But just as we kept working in, the shell kept getting bigger and bigger. And at one point, it just became obvious that we had both the carapace, the top part of the shell, and the plastron, the, the underside uh, of the shell present. Um, and I was like, okay, this thing needs uh, a name. Um, what should we call it? And I, I turned to the um, students and CFC staff folks around me and said, Quick, what's your favorite Ninja Turtle? And the answer was Donatello, because Donatello is the most scientifically minded of the Ninja Turtles. And so we said, okay, Donatello uh, it is. Now we've got another turtle that we've been working on. It's too large for us to have brought back. It's still very much so on on display in the galleries of, of the Paleon Museum. And that's the one that has been nicknamed the Evil Turtle, or alternatively... Lord Voldetort. Okay. And it gets that nick because it was a pain in the butt to excavate. 
It was in very, very hard sandstone, and it was found at the bottom, at the very, very bottom of this river channel. And it was exposed during floodwater conditions. It just collapsed some of the bank there. And that meant it was basically surrounded by muck and mire. And it's this, it's this enormous thing. It's, uh, it's a, I, I, can't, I can't wrap my arms wow. uh, all the way around it. Um, it's a it's a big turtle shell, and by the time it's got you know matrix filling it in, it was in, incredibly heavy. So it was just a huge pain to pull uh, out of there. So sometimes the names are giving uh, are given lovingly, and and sometimes uh, they're given uh, a bit uh, maliciously. Hmm. Well, if it was like 18 years old and a ninja, it could be a teenage Mesozoic ninja turtle. It'd be all right. Yep. <laughs> Uh, so it was, uh, yeah, I would think Donatello would probably have the greatest proclivity to become a paleontologist of, of all the Ninja Turtles. So it was the students that got the name and not, uh, or was it like, you didn't want to name it a Ninja Turtle name? Well, no, no, I, 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 I said, what's your favorite Ninja Turtle? Uh, not, not being particularly well versed in the Ninja Turtle uh, lore myself. And I thought the students would jump on it. And my goodness, they did. Okay, right on. Well, good for them. I would have jumped on yeah. Ninja Turtles too. You weren't a Ninja Turtle fan. I, I wasn't. I think I think I sort of missed that. Adult. I know that Ninja Turtles have been in, in the pop culture ups and downs mm. for a long. What reason? I think the timing just wasn't uh, uh, right for me. Though I'm told the new movie is very good. Oh yeah, I recommend it. It's uh, it's yeah. edgy. It's uh, it's like definitely for kids, but like the soundtracks by Trent Reznor, which is the Nine Inch Nails guy. The animation style is not smooth. Like it's really it's gritty looking. It, it, but uh, yeah, it's actually actually very anxiety-inducing. <laughs> but it was a fun movie. <laughs> I guess so. Here's another one that's got a fun name. It, it's a notosaur. I see that there's one nicknamed Lord Clive. Yes, that's our that's our notosaur. Okay. That's the one we went uh, to excavate. Yes, oh, okay. um, and Lord Clive has its name um, in part because it's a pairing with a triceratops. That's at the Glen Rock Paleo Museum. And this is the Triceratops that actually began the museum. It's a beautiful um, skull. Um, and that Triceratops uh, was named uh, Lady Stephanie. Okay. And so we've got Lady Stephanie and we've got uh, Lord Clive. Two specimens that were found very early on. Um, and so they're sort of uh, thematically similar in that regard. Okay. Are they named after aristocratic donors or, or I, some literature? I, I'm not... <laughs> no, no I, I'm not aware of any aristocratic donors uh, in Glen Rock, uh, Wyoming. Uh, not to say there aren't uh, many very, very generous donors, and certainly the decision to uh, donate the Triceratops was, uh, but these are true cowpokes we're talking about. Mm. No, I, the origin of Lady Stephanie was that is uh, absolutely what the landowner chose to name it. I think they just thought it was a, a fun name. Um, and Lord Clive gets that name to be similar to Lady Stephanie. Uh, but um, uh, also it's the name of a British a battleship, which seems kind of appropriate uh, for an armor, an ironclad notosaur. Yeah. Mm. Very cool. I like the sounds of that. And so this one, hundreds of osteoderms, and you're saying the whole hip package and... So all in all, how large would this notosaur come out to be when you're when you're looking at a live animal? That's that's a really good question. Um, and the honest answer is um, I don't have an exact measurement that I can give you. And that's because the specimen is not complete. So we do not have a full series of vertebrae that I can lay out there from um, tail tip to uh, to snout tip. 
Um, I can tell you, though, that the individual elements that we're finding that we're able to make comparisons to to large nodosaurs like uh, Denverosaurus and, uh, and Edmontonia, uh, they are absolutely uh, comparable in size. So this is a critter that very clearly seems to be uh, well over um, uh, 20, 25 feet uh, in length. It's a very large nodosaur. That is cool. That's really cool. What an exciting time. So how many how many more years are you going to have to go back to get to get all the Clive into Oh, we think we got we, we think we got it. Okay. We, think we have all, all of Clive by the end of the field season, we had pulled out uh, multiple pieces uh, of the pelvic shield and we had reached the point where our rate of discovering new osteoderms, new material was petering out. Mm-hmm. So we think we have all the major elements of it. We'll do our due diligence and sort of return and do a big trench a couple meters back uh, just to make sure that we didn't just uh, reach a pocket where the specimen um, stopped. Uh, but we, I, I do think that that excavation is, is basically finished now, which is, which is of course, is, is great. Mm-hmm. Now we on to describing and, uh, and publishing on it. Well, here's a good question then, and maybe it's related. We're at the, you know, this, the, the penultimate chapter of, uh, of Jurassic Park. We're going to be talking yeah. about the, the final details and things like that. When it comes to putting the finishing touches on an academic paper or doing the research, when, I mean, it feels like you had to stop at some point and just publish. <laughs> as opposed to because you'll never answer all the questions how do you how do you decide where to put your limits in terms of what you want to do and uh what what do the finishing touches look like before you send it to be i guess reviewed yeah so you're you're absolutely right um especially for an animal that's got as much going on with it as our notosaur does it is not that there will be a single publication on the specimen and then it's done the hopes is that this will be a valuable uh, reference specimen, that other researchers will come in and include it in their studies of larger nodosaur, larger ankylosaur questions about evolution, about ecology, about biomechanics, what, what have you. So my goal right now for the paper is to note everything that seems to make our animal unusual, note the different kinds of osteoderms that we're seeing, say a little something about how we think this notosaur is related to others, and then also describe the, uh, the tyrannosaur feeding traces that are present on it. And that's basically the scope of the initial publication. That'll provide a lot of uh, images and resources and measurements out there so that it will be a, a publication that, in addition to just saying, hey, here's this cool thing, um, other researchers can in- incorporate it in. But this is by no means intended to be the last word on Lord Clive. Mm-hmm. Did you have the, the story of Milo and Otis growing up, the, the, the pug and the kitten that ran around the countryside? Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. I can see the future of uh, Lord Clive and Lady Stephanie uh, being something similar, where they get to <laughs> do a little journey through uh, the Lance Formation once upon a time and uh, and teach the world, the children of Wyoming, about uh, their, their, their little environment there. <laughs> oh, yes. I think that'd be a fitting place for them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, this is really good. I know that uh, at the end of the book, you're saying you don't quite remember how uh, Jurassic Park ends. Uh, they go, they follow uh, a, a juvenile velociraptor into the raptor nest they find at the southern tip of the island, and they explore the the, the eggshells, and they try to think, well, let's see if we can perhaps deduce how many raptors are on this island, and therefore, if we can see how many may have hatched, we can therefore cross-reference that against how many we know the animal count is picking up, and then try and figure out if 
and you have escaped the island. And of course, uh, they never quite get to finishing that because a helicopter comes and, and uh, whisks them away before they, they napalm <laughs> Jurassic Park and leave it behind in its dust. Yes, I remember the island being uh, napalmed, but mm-hmm. I know you've got epilogue coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, want, I, I don't want to spoil the epilogue, uh, but as I recall, uh, the fact that you alluded to that, they, that all the raptors are not necessarily accounted for uh, does return. Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay. It's a fun mystery to think of what are the, what are the, the impact that Jurassic Park had and how does it lead on. And, uh, yeah, how, that, how, the, how the story ends is I always felt like a bizarre cliffhanger in, in terms of what it leaves behind. But I liked, you know, it, it, the chapter kind of ends with just Grant looking over at the island and seeing it kind of fade away as sinks away. What did they call it? The key, the key light on a stage when the, when the spotlight shrinks down and just goes down a little keyhole. <laughs> I see it like yeah. Looney Tunes, you know, it just <laughs> closes the circle and that's the, that's the end of it. And then we get into the epilogue, which is a little bit more formal. It's kind of like the introduction. It's a, a high-level review of yeah, what I... happened. Maybe I'm totally off on this, but I have a memory of chupacabras coming up, either in the epilogue or maybe it's in the beginning of The Lost World. They're certainly mysterious animals, that's for sure. Yes. Um, They're definitely unknown animals that people aren't sure what to do with that uh, appear in both the beginning of The Lost World and uh, the end of Jurassic Park. I think it would have been a neat sequel to, to do an adventure where for Grant and everyone to leave... The, the hotel that they're kind of sequestered at in order to, to earn their freedom. They need to, you know, join a scientist and escape into the Ismoloya mountains and find the, the lost animals that might be doing this and like hunt through the, the, uh, the Costa Rican uh, jungles to, to look for the escaped animal. I think that would have been a neat sequel. Well, that's sort of what everyone expected the, uh, the sequel to Jurassic Park to be, uh, to be like that everyone expected, um, frightened to leave the island setting and to have a more sort of um, Jurassic Park infringing on, on, on humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, and it's interesting, throughout the franchise's history, there's been sort of a real uh, resistance, a real push-pull to make that final uh, jump. Um, I think that Crichton got it right. I think that what's fun about Jurassic Park is that it is sort of a novel time travel adventure mm-hmm. as you're out there on an island it, it very much so feels like you have through the power of genetic engineering not brought animals back into our world but found a way to recreate theirs and, and visit it mm-hmm. well yeah it was uh we had one guest on and we talked about uh this alice in wonderland uh motif where you go through a portal and you arrive in a new land mm-hmm. and that is jurassic park and you can kind of explore these themes and stuff like that but then you can exit the portal <laughs> and leave that land behind and it doesn't have an effect but it's also a place where you can make a satirical argument perhaps at power structures without necessarily being being blamed for for having a crazy opinion on it or something like that you can watch kind of a satire of it all be exaggerated out of proportion before you return but we know that uh in the book it was a big important part the movies they certainly resisted it tremendously and we know the dinosaurs were excellent at uh at overcoming geographic boundaries that uh, they certainly, the threat was that this would be an infection. This would be an apocalypse that, you know, would change the ecosystems and collapse environments if, if dinosaurs and this genetic technology could escape Pandora's box. And um, it was interesting that the book was very good about, you know, blow it up, close that chapter. That's not going to work. But there's this weird 
clue at the end, like maybe maybe some dinosaurs escaped. And we know dinosaurs were escaping the island, hence the beginning of the book when they're uh, attacking babies and children and stuff like that. <laughs> but uh, it was um, an interesting time back when Jurassic Park was just the one movie, just the one book, and everybody really, really was inspired and, and uh, had their imagination was certainly piqued by, by the possibilities of, of what a world with dinosaurs and stuff like that would be like. And, it uh, was. Jurassic Park, I think, is sort of different from a lot of other works by Michael Crichton in that um, elsewhere, Crichton, I think, really does the job of selling to his audience the idea that this is dangerous technology and you really don't want to mess with it. Mm -hmm. That it's Pandora's box that you're convinced you should not open. I think Jurassic Park has the opposite effect. That everyone's sort of like, yeah, uh-huh, that is big and scary, but man, doesn't that sound like a cool thing uh, to, to do? I think it's just so exciting. Um, I think it really undercuts the uh, sort of the tombstone message that Crichton wants us to buy into. Yes. That human careful, it doesn't know what it's doing. I think the cultural um, perspective is, no, 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 yeah, no, cloning dinosaurs, that will kill us all, but we got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> we'd be crazy not to uh it begs the question i understand that they're going to that there is there are efforts and i think somewhere in europe to sequester some land or or, or second some land and uh in eventually breed mammoths and other extinct animals there's a real serious genetic effort to try and bring recently dis extinct animals back and try and put them into an environment uh the question is do they all get destroyed immediately after one person is harmed by them <laughs> If you put all that time and effort into finally cloning a mammoth and somebody fools around and finds out what it's like to fool around with a mammoth, how quick before they say, you know what, guys, before this gets out of hand, it'd be sad, wouldn't it? It, it would be very sad. And, you know, honestly, I don't see that happening, not just because the, the mammoth would be so gosh darn uh, expensive, um, but because, you know, mammoths, if they're anything like uh, modern day uh, elephants, although they've got great capacity uh, to be destructive, much like how bison in Yellowstone and, and elephants in Africa today um, are responsible annually for, for many deaths. It's usually because someone's mucked with them in a way that they really shouldn't have. Mm. Oh, yeah. You're not doing something right if you're right beside a mammoth. If you're in striking distance, you've done something wrong. <laughs> you did something foolish. I would only imagine. Well, we'll see. Somebody's going to do it. They're going to try their darndest anyhow. Are serious efforts underway now? There is still a lot of uh, incredibly significant um, uh, roadblocks mm -hmm. as far as the technology and the capacity is concerned to trying to bring back extinct creatures, be them mammoths or or passenger pigeons. But you know, I think um, I think the will is certainly there, and I suspect that means that eventually it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Whether or not we'll get to see a mammoth in our lifetime, I'm I'm skeptical of. But I think that for at least some recently extinct critters, it's just uh, an, an inevitability. For certainly, extinct um, uh, species in, in general. Of course, we have uh, brought back subspecies. Mm -hmm. I think it, wouldn't it be a wise idea to experiment with some of this cloning and reintroduction stuff to just start with like really endangered present animals that we don't need to get unusual sources of dna from just go find some rare rhinos and maybe a couple of rare like really threatened animal pandas they don't breed 
<laughs> the way we want them to in captivity. Why don't we just clone a bunch of pandas and then we could perhaps? <laughs> but doesn't that seem like a starter house sort of thing? Of course, of course, that has been suggested. Absolutely, and in some cases, you know, a breeding programs like that are in place. You don't necessarily need to go as far as to clone them, right? You mm-hmm. can just artificially inseminate them. But you know, that brings up an, an interesting point when we're thinking about dinosaurs today. Our attempts at saving endangered um, species and at bringing them back from the brink of extinction are greatly, greatly hindered um, by um, the uh, the reproductive rates of yeah. mammals, um, and also the, the the reproductive rates of many endangered reptiles like like Galapagos uh, tortoises. Um, in the case of the mammals, they they big ones, big ones. Um, although they grow to maturity relatively quickly, they've got relatively fast uh, growth, they only produce one, right? One or in some cases twins. So it takes a very, very long time for a population to rebound. And you've got the opposite problem when you look at a Galapagos tortoise. They will lay a whole bunch of eggs, okay? But they're slow-growing reptiles. So it takes them a very, very long time before they reach the point where they can uh, reproduce. Dinosaurs are sort of the best of both worlds. If you're a myosaurus, you're the same size as a, as a modern-day giraffe, your young grow up just, uh, just about as quickly as the giraffe's offspring do, but you are producing a huge clutch, clutch size uh, more like um, a tortoise. Mm. In that way, ironically, I think dinosaurs were actually probably extremely extinction-resistant. Because even if you back them down in the corner, even if you put a population to a very narrow uh, bottleneck, they had the ability to rebound uh, relatively quickly by comparison to uh, the big megafauna of today. Mm-hmm. You can't argue that, uh, that the sauropods did an extraordinary job making it for a long time. And, yes, and, uh, yes. Yeah, it's an... And you don't see that pattern when you look at the evolution of, of big mammals. So different big mammal groups uh, arrive from smaller descendants. They rise up and then they go down, they go up and they go down. Sauropods get big and they stay large and in charge uh, throughout the Mesozoic, which is a big run. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, being that big would require so many resources, but they never seem to have a problem with that. Well, I mean, eventually they did, but <laughs> it's a, yeah, incredible stuff. Well, what exciting times. I hope that we can, you know, instead of cloning things that don't you know, exist anymore, hopefully we can solve some more important problems with cloning before that. But uh, we'll see how it all plays out. Uh, probably not for the best. Well, uh, thank you so much uh, for coming back. Uh, close moment. Can, can I the obvious question? I don't want to, um, uh, to steal your thunder from the final episode, but you're, you're down to the epilogue yeah. right now. Are, are you going on to the lost world? It's a good question. I don't love The Lost World like I love this one. I don't know that it's as jam-packed with as much fascinating uh, references and technology as the, the, the first one. And I don't think it's as well-known as the first one either. Although a lot of people really love it. It's got more dynamic. It's, it's almost a beat-for-beat retelling of Jurassic Park in a lot of ways. Malcolm still gets a broken leg. He still winds up doped up and, and carried out <laughs> on a stretcher. They, it still takes him 100 pages to get to the island. It's amazing how it's very similar. But I find it, it was... Um, yeah. uh, uh, Dr. Phil Curry up at the University of Alberta, he believes wholeheartedly that Crichton did not really write The Lost World. He believes that there was um, a ghost author uh, employed to get it done quickly. He feels like the style of it 
um, is is different. I have no evidence to, to suggest that that's true, um, but uh, that's that's what he really thinks. Mm. Well, there's certainly less world building involved mm -hmm. that uh, went into Jurassic Park, and I think it was a lot cruder. Like it, the language he uses. He swears a, a lot more in the next one. I think it's to make his villain seem a little bit more punchy, but it's different. I uh, I don't know. I have considered maybe doing more. Uh, I've, I've considered some things. I don't know if I'm going to do a, a chapter by chapter breakdown of the Lost World. <laughs> it could be interesting, but I don't know if it'd be as even as interesting as this was. Well, you could throw everyone off. You could say you're going to do the Lost World, and then you switch to Conan Doyle. <laughs> that would be fun. It would be interesting. I so uh, I've I've considered maybe doing something where I've got tons of books on dinosaurs, um, mm -hmm. and maybe just doing an episode on a book once in a while on occasion. Oh yeah, and just say you know here's a book instead of one book chapter by chapter. You know I've got I don't know seven books called Terrible Lizard or something like that <laughs> <laughs> by different authors. The Lost Dinosaurs is Egypt it was a really good book I think, and uh, and there's no shortage of others that. Uh, I got lying around, so it could be it could be interesting to do something like that with just one book at a time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you could uh, do Raptor Red, maybe. I would be interested in that. Yeah, I would be. <laughs> I haven't uh, haven't found my copy of it yet, but I'll get one sooner or later. Well, uh, well, thank you so much for coming back and being a part of this and sharing everything about your your uh, journeys and uh, your childhood and everything. That's really wonderful. I appreciate it so much. No, my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And if, uh, if there's another iteration of this, I'll, uh, I'll certainly call back and <laughs> see, see where you're at. <laughs> Find out more about Lord Clive. Awesome. Happy to chat. All right. Well, thank you again. My pleasure. See ya. A, a tremendous thank you to, to Dr. Persons for coming back on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. love catching up. Uh, I'm excited to hear how the, things are going to turn out with Lord Clive. The text for this week is the chapter Approaching Dark, spanning from pages 395 to 397. In the synopsis, big helicopters burst through the fog, thundering and wheeling over the landscape, their underbellies heavy with armament, causing the raptors on the beach to scatter, and the Costa Ricans question the survivors, eager to find out who is in charge, but nobody is in charge. The island is bombed and destroyed, as Grant takes a final look back at Isla Nublar, which is, which is a diminishing bright spot in the darkening night. Lots of characters in this one. We have Ellie Sattler. She's fascinated with and eagerly supportive of Grant's theory that the Velociraptors are instinctually being driven to migrate on page 395. She's picked up by soldiers on the beach and is overlooked as someone who might be in charge by the soldiers on 396. And when, when Lex starts to cry when the bombings start, Ellie comforts her and tries to turn her head, away, uh, turn her head from looking. Tim Murphy, uh, he is already aboard the helicopter, and he waves at Grant and Sattler as they come aboard on 396. Lex Murphy, Lex is also already on the helicopter, looking strikingly young. After after their journey, they realize how young she really is on 396. Uh, she's sleepy, and when the bombing starts, uh, she obviously she cries. Dr. Alan Grant, Grant grins with his realization that the raptors appear to want to migrate, and he's very satisfied with himself on 395. He's picked up by the soldiers on the beach and is harnessed into the chopper, and he denies being in charge, and then watches out the window for a final glance at the raptors on 396. And upon hearing of Hammond and Malcolm's deaths, a wave of fatigue washes over Grant. He's too tired to feel much of anything after this point. Uh, he can see the juvenile tyrannosaur crouched over a pre predated hadrosaur by the edge of the lagoon. And after watching a few explosions, he sits back in his seat, wondering where it is the velociraptors would have migrated to on page 397. He realizes he'll never know now. Uh, and that makes him sad, but he's also relieved in, in the same moment. 
There are soldiers in all of uniforms. The Spanish-speaking soldiers arrive in a helicopter and land on the beach on 395, and they ask politely that Grant Sattler and Gennaro board the helicopter, saying, there is no more time here. That's an interesting phrase. Robert Muldoon. Muldoon is already aboard the helicopter on 395, and Muldoon tells Grant the Costa Ricans are blowing up the island right now on 396. Muldoon reports to Grant that Harding and some workmen were already evacuated, that Hammond died and was eaten by copies, and it's implied that Malcolm has also not survived. Donald Gennaro. Gennaro denies being in charge at Isla Nublar to the soldiers when they pick him up on 396. Dr. Ian Malcolm, after hearing that Hammond has died, Grant asks what's come of Malcolm, and Muldoon just shakes his head as if saying, no, he didn't make it on 396. John Hammond was found near his bungalow, and the compies had got him, we're told, on 396, but we already knew that. Uh, some workmen. These guys were evacuated with Harding earlier on 396. Dr. Harding, we're told, was evacuated earlier. We just we just heard that. And with the velociraptors, with the arrival of the helicopter, the raptors vanish. It's likely the soldiers in all of uniforms never actually even see the dinosaurs, which is interesting. Uh, there are Procomp Signathuses. These are given the confirmed kill of Hammond, as reported by Muldoon on 396. Uh, a Tyrannosaurus. The juvenile Tyrannosaur has bloody jaws, and it's snacking away at a Hadrosaur by the lagoon as the chopper flies by on 396. And she looks up at the helicopter as it flies. Um, hey, Let's take a quick moment here and think about Big Rex. She's still, I guess, face down in the bottom of the waterfalls, sleeping off the tranquilizer. And for all the trouble that she caused our heroes, who did Big Rex actually eat in this book? She ate a goat that was hand-fed to her in the enclosure. She did beat up Malcolm. Uh, she caught a hadrosaur in a stampede and then chased Grant, Lex, and Tim down the river. But she never killed anybody, unless Malcolm counts. And he, he probably does count, unless. But, but he died because he couldn't get to he couldn't get access to a doctor. So the tyrannosaur might not not actually get any confirmed kills in this book. Hadrosaurus, one of these is dead and it's being eaten by a juvenile tyrannosaur on three ninety six, and it may be the same one from yesterday that the big rex caught. Hypsilophodons. And hey, we just had a new species of Hypsilophodon in the news. Grant watches these leap-like gazelles just before they're incinerated by a bomb on 396 and 397. And there are a couple localities. We have the beach. Through the mist over the Pacific Ocean lies the beach. Uh, and we're on a helicopter, too. The helicopter interior is big enough for multiple soldiers, Grant, Sattler, Muldoon, and Gennaro, apparently, on 396. And there are seats and harnesses, and Lex and Tim are on here, too. We can see the visitor center. It explodes in a bright orange fireball as it is bombed. On 396, and that is our last sights of of uh, of localities in this book before the epilogue here. Stylistic techniques. We have italics. Senor is italicized twice, suggesting that this is a non-English word. It's mentioned on page 396, and it has no accent over the letter N. And the second mention of it on page 397 does have an accent over the letter N. And this accent, I believe, is called a tilde or something like that. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but T-I-L-D-E. Now, this is a strange development because my 1991 and 1993 editions both have accents over both ends, which I believe would be the most correct way to publish this word, but my latest edition from around 1999 or 2000 has omitted one of the tildes over the N in Senor on page 396. You can check your edition and see whether you've got these tildes over your ends on those pages or not. That's fun. Uh, colon. Grant leaned to Maldun and shouted, Colon, what about the others? On 396. Uh, we're here, the colon presents a quote, as colons do well, presenting things. Uh, exclamation, migrating, exclamation mark. That's fantastic, exclamation mark. On 395 says Ellie, who must feel like Grant's theory ticks all the boxes, so to speak. She's inspired, enthused, and excited about his theory, and the exclamation reveals that. And I think whenever we come up, make a cool connection with dinosaurs, we like to think in exclamations as well. I always find that very exciting. 
Literary techniques. We have a simile. Grant looked back just once and saw the island against a deep purple sky and sea cloaked in a deep mist that blurred the white-hot explosions that burst rapidly one after another until it seemed the entire island was glowing, a diminishing bright spot in the darkening night on 397. Here Crichton is getting as poetic as he can in our final images of Isla Nublar, a world with dinosaurs in it, and putting all of our adventures behind us trying to recall a new form of life as was warned against in the epigraphs. The Deep mist, quote, cloaks the island, metaphorically as if it were wearing a garment, transferring the properties of wearing clothes to the island, perhaps giving the island the qualities of a person who might wear a cloak as it's smoldered by fire. It's like watching a funeral pyre, in a sense. That it, quote, seems as if the island was glowing, a diminishing bright spot in the darkening night, plays with the archetypal symbol of light as knowledge and wisdom, or the gaining of knowledge giving you light, it's enlightening, and this is a place where the scientific era is coming to a close, and so with the death of Hammond and the failure of Jurassic Park, the light is dying down to a glow. It's like the life going out of the Terminator's eye, in a way. Now it's a diminishing bright spot in the darkening night, and again beyond paradigm, now on the other side, it is now dark and things are unknown. In our discussion section here, let's talk a little bit about the island's layout. Uh, I hate to do this at the end of the novel because I love the novel, but I have to point out something about the island that came up, which is a little disappointing for me. I was trying to reconstruct what this island looks like and then potentially see if I could develop a novel-accurate map to wow and impress my friends. Uh, well, well, the truth is, it's not a very cool-looking island. There are three specific measurements that are given to us about Isla Nublar, and with those three details, there is basically only one shape that the island can look like, and that's a very dull rectangle. We're told that it is eight miles long on page 53. At its widest, it is three miles wide and has a square area of 22 square miles on page 77. Well, guess what? If you multiply eight times three, the limits to the length and width of Isla Nublar, you get 24 square miles. So basically, it's a really generic, straight-up rectangle missing two square miles at the southern end. And I find that kind of disappointing. Also, it's, it's said to be a seamount, which is a geological re term reserved for volcanic upthrusts which do not breach the surface of the water. Seamounts are categorically below the surface of the ocean. They are underwater mountains. This is a volcanic island, not a seamount, as described by, by Crichton. So that's a tough spot to start with our discussion section because I want to be excited about everything in this, uh, in this book, uh, but that, that part of it kind of is disappointing. But more importantly, here we go. Uh, control is a hoax. There's a moment when a soldier walks from character to character asking if they're in charge, and they all reject being in charge on 396. And after we've had this whole novel saying how the dream of ultimate control is unattainable, and someone is now asking if there's anyone here that is in control, they all deny it. This is the lesson they've all learned, that control is a hoax. None of us are in charge. That the soldiers asked this question of Grant, then of Gennaro, and presumably has already asked Muldoon when he was picked up, speaks to the theme of the novel, that control is a hoax, and these survivors have all learned this, and I like that. One final time, a soldier, bending close to Grant's face, are you in charge? No. Please, senor, who is in charge? Nobody, said Grant. Nobody is in charge. There's a narrative acceptance that nobody is in control. This is a marked change from all the systems of control, the chapters named control, the belief that finally now things are under control. And I love that in this final moment, it's the survivors who've accepted that nobody is in control. This is such a poignant and effective conclusion to this theme that's been expertly explored 
in this novel. Uh, and we should talk a bit about feminism. When the soldier is going from character to character asking who is in charge, he looked at Ellie, but said nothing to her on 396, suggesting that the Costa Ricans or soldiers or just mankind in general wouldn't expect a woman to be in charge. Now, she's only 24, remember. I'm sure they didn't ask Lex and Tim if they were in charge, too. But this is read that, you know, she's being dismissed as a potential person of authority because she's a woman. And that's, I think, plainly written in the text. So, given that this is so visible and notable, Crichton is, you know, making a feminist argument here. But maybe, maybe he's not. Maybe he's just really raising a mirror to society, reflecting its flaws back at itself as a critique, maybe? He's obviously not offering a solution of any kind. Frankly, it's not like he hasn't participated in depicting a sexist bias towards Sattler's description compared to, to that, that of any other male character. But perhaps it's just, yeah, a moment where Crichton is holding up a mirror to society. I imagine he isn't saying much more than that. And I'm confident this is written to refer to Sattler's femininity and not her age. She's surely not in charge by virtue of her age alone, but I don't think that's why Crichton is having the soldiers overlook her. I'm sure this is to be read as she's a woman and thus wouldn't be in charge of Jurassic Park. Almost paradigm, the light symbolism and that it's diminishing signifies the end of the scientific era, as prophesied by Malcolm. They've gone beyond the paradigm. They're in a post-scientific era, if we're to extend this conceit. The universe in which Jurassic Park is set has moved beyond this moment, I guess. Note that the island is a, quote, diminishing bright spot in the darkening night, in a chapter named Approaching Darkness. As this light goes out, as this symbol of wisdom and the scientific era approaches darkness, we are moving beyond the paradigm, as Malcolm put it, or, so I would argue Crichton would have us believe. This is a world where scientists no longer believe the dream that science ultimately will provide answers for complete control over nature. And Dr. Alan Grant is one of those scientists who accepts that some questions cannot be answered. This reading is encouraged by Grant's observations at the beginning of the chapter. Grant concedes that he'll never know about velociraptor migration routes, and he's both happy and sad. He's very curious. It's his lifelong dream to observe carnivorous dinosaurs and their infant rearing, and so he's sad. But he'll gladly sac sacrifice ever knowing these details, admitting that there are things we cannot know, if it means not unleashing velociraptors on the earth, right? This is a world that Malcolm says helps us improve our lives, which scientific advancements have not done via his examples of chores around the house. Malcolm suggests that a housewife's duties around the home have not diminished since technological innovations started aiding with the housework. Rather, he says that a hunter-gatherer society had much more free time and a clean environment in which to build societies back in, remember, episode 49, the aviary. One question that science cannot answer, he adds, is, quote, what to do with my power? in episode 51, Control, in his closing remarks before the sixth iteration. What, what does Malcolm suggest that we could do with our power? What he offered in conclusion to episode 58, Destroying the World, he says, quote, let's be clear, the planet is not in jeopardy. We are in jeopardy. We haven't got the power to destroy the planet or to save it, but we might have the power to save ourselves. I think this is the world beyond the paradigm of the scientific era that Malcolm is hoping for where scientists concede that science doesn't have all the answers, but we may be able to use the power it offers us to save ourselves or to make the world a better place. So in conclusion, I like to think that this chapter is the end of the story of Jurassic Park, Isla Nublar, and our heroes. Their journey is complete. The epilogue sort of says what happens next, but, but really this moment here, this is where the feelings are, as we say goodbye to the dinosaurs, goodbye to the dream, a return to the world that was saved from an ecological disaster that they never even knew about. Quote, Grant looked back just once and saw the island against the deep purple sky and sea, cloaked in a deep mist that blurred the white-hot explosions 
that burst rapidly, one after another, until it seemed the entire island was glowing, a diminishing bright spot in the darkening night on 397. What do you say? Does that feel like what Crichton was aiming for? Does he wrap up his themes and plot and resolve some character arcs? Alright, I want to sign off today thanking Dr. Scott Persons for coming back on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you so much for coming back on the show. I really, really appreciate it. It's been wonderful. Uh, and I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. It's just one last episode. I hope you come back to check it out then. If you'd like to read along in the book and add some thoughts of what we've been discussing on the show, or, or be a guest on the show you can chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park it's I guess not too late you can still do that by connecting with me I'm at ryanesrogers at gmail.com if you'd like to be a guest drop me a line and we can try and set something up we can rehash tear down and gush over and chit chat about any part of the book or also not the book all you'd like the Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties including the Spring Chickens funny pages two of the under graphic novel the second lap's graphic novelettes the infantry and the worst of them all the King Street Papers and you can find links to all that package in the show notes or by visiting schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or you can find me on X at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. And also not that too. See you for the last episode. <laughs>